Доброго вечора, ми з України. Hello, we are from Ukraine. We are Ukraine FM team, Radio National Resistance. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is our collaborator and your host, Anne Levin. You are listening Ukraine 242. On 242, Russia began its war on Ukraine, which is now in its fifth month. February 24th is a date which is burned into the psyche of every Ukrainian. For all of us, it was the beginning of life in an altered world. I am Anne Levine, the host and creator of Ukraine 242. Every week I bring you interviews with people on the ground in Ukraine and experts investigating the war in collaboration with WOMR-FM, Pacifica Network, and Kraina-FM. Today we hear from Dr. Ian Garner, a historian and translator of Russian culture and war propaganda. He's written for and been interviewed by The Washington Post, Rolling Stone, New York Times, BBC, CBC, Radio Canada, and many, many more. His book, Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival, will be released later this year. Dr. Garner has a PhD from the University of Toronto and studied at University of Bristol in England and St. Petersburg State Conservatory in Russia. His work focuses on Soviet and Russian literary and cultural representation of war and the hidden sides of Soviet and Russian life. Dr. Garner, on February 24th, where were you? On February 24th, I was here in Kingston, Ontario, following very closely on social media. Of course, I'd followed events in the days leading up to February 24th and the, the to and fro between various experts and politicians saying that the invasion's definitely going to happen, the invasion's never going to happen, and everything in between. And I just remember my response of com- complete shock. And I spent the first few days after the invasion began, really in a daze, where I couldn't quite comprehend what was happening, even though we knew that the troops had been building up and that things didn't look good. It still didn't seem real watching on from abroad. I want to ask you about your big book that's coming out in December, Stalingrad Lives. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know it's a work of tremendous scope, but what would you like us to know about your work? The book is all about the group of writers who went to Stalingrad and produced on the ground, in the trenches, this story of Stalingrad that has really captured the Russian imagination for the last 80 years. So we're talking about some really great names all living together. People like Vasily Grossman, who would go on to write this great dissident novel, Life and Fate, that came out against his own role as a propagandist for the state. People like Konstantin Simonov, Ilya Ehrenburg, who was another latter-day dissident in his time. And what we find is in these quite beautiful and elegant stories they wrote that they were allowed a lot of scope just to go around the front, interview people, and write down what was really happening at the front and produce this story of Stalingrad as the great turning point in the nation, the idea that many people died at Stalingrad in order to save the world, a sort of the narrative martyrdom and sacrifice. The book's really readable. It translates some of their stories, their great little stories, really engaging, really elegant. 
it follows them as they go through this incredibly difficult fight through the six months of the battle, what happened to them and the story in the 80 years that followed. And I, I think, or at least I hope people will find it as fascinating as I did researching and writing the book. What is your book going to teach us about what's happening now? What I want people to know by reading the book is the ways in which the Putin government is using what is a very genuine story and what is a meaningful story in such a crude and corrupt way in order to sell its wars today and say that the sacrifices you're making in the present are just like Stalingrad. And I think when you read the book, you will be struck by how easily German atrocities and Soviet, and we are talking about Soviet in the book because this wasn't just Russians fighting, it would be so easy in the stories you read and in the narrative you read in the book to, to switch those narratives of heroism around, just change the places, and in place of Germans, put Russians, and in place of Soviets, put Ukrainians. And if people like Vasily Grossman saw what the government was doing today, the propaganda that it was producing from the front, which is just so full of lies, he would have been appalled. And Konstantin Simonov would have been appalled, as would Ilya Ehrenborg and a whole bunch of others. It really is quite sad to think that this memory of World War II that people like Grossman were producing could have been something quite genuine and touching and heartfelt, could have united the nation in a, a sense of genuine pride, but instead it's been corrupted and defiled with this cult of World War II and the cult of sacrifice and a cult of essentially racist violence against Ukrainians and against everything that is not Russian. Would you define what's going on now in Ukraine that Russia's committing genocide? It seems to me that that is the case. And I am not a legal scholar, and so I find it hard to know exactly what terms should be used to describe a genocide, but it seems to be unequivocal that the war is driven by a deliberate and an open acceptance of violence against Ukrainians, fatal violence against Ukrainians, driven by a language that has alarming parallels with languages of genocide we've seen in places like Yugoslavia, Rwanda, and of course in the Holocaust, and that means calling Ukrainians cockroaches, calling Ukrainians vermin, and calling Ukrainians diseased, dehumanizing them so that they mean nothing, that they are not people anymore, and indeed calling them niludi, unpeople, is the best translation I can think of. That's a language and that's a behavior that seems to align with historical genocides. How is Russia using propaganda as a weapon? It's using propaganda on several fronts. Firstly, at home, it's increasingly attempting to rally a particular segment of the population that already supports Putin and amp them up, excite them about the idea of the invasion in Ukraine, encouraging them in this bizarre belief that many genuinely hold, thanks to propaganda, mostly spread via the internet rather than state television, that in order to survive, Russia must erase Ukraine. The second front it's using propaganda on is in the West. Canada, America, Britain, and of course Europe, and that is muddying the waters with a series of sort of what we would call negative stories that aim to undermine the stability of what is essentially empirical reality by saying that NATO is a threat to Russia, that it was America that started the war, that all, all sorts of things. And the idea here is not really to make anyone believe this. It's to make them question the belief about reality that they actually have. And the third front, and this has been very underreported in the media, and it's something I'm not an expert on, but I think it's really notable, is the ways that Russia is trying to spread positive messages about itself abroad. 
in the developing world. So we've seen that in Brazil, in China, in India, in Iran, in the countries that essentially it sees as its potential new partners in a post-American world abroad. What's come out from Russia in the last week? Right now, a lot of the focus is on Russia's relations with developing countries. In particular, it's the building up of its links with Iran, which it sees as a potential partner. And secondly, the focus on the economy at home. That's really been the big focus for the last few weeks. And the government is continuing to promise its people that things will be better in a few weeks or a few months from now. Just trust us, hold on, and we'll get there. And I think what it is essentially hoping will happen is that the West will crack. As we saw yesterday, countries like Hungary will start coming to Russia cap in hand to sign agreements about gas supply as the winter approaches, that the Republicans will probably win the election, the midterm elections in the fall, might take a softer line towards sanctions, if not military support in Ukraine itself, and that those promises they're making to the people at home will uh, will come good. What's the difference between disinformation and misinformation? How do you tell the difference? Disinformation is a deliberate lie. So this is the sort of stuff that Russia will usually create, right? And this is stories, for example, about wild Ukrainian plans to build dirty nuclear bombs or the idea of the biolab conspiracy or the COVID emerge from Ukraine on pigeons. This is the stuff that's deliberately made up. Misinformation is essentially stuff that is either accidentally said, stuff that is that becomes twisted in a sort of a game of broken telephone, particularly in, on the internet over time. So as people, for example, might genuinely believe that an image showing a war crime would be a real image, and it turns out that it's actually faked. Well, they're spreading misinformation. So disinformation can turn into misinformation as it's spread. And that makes it really hard to pick apart the difference between the two. Because nowadays, most users, especially most Western users of, for example, something like Twitter or Facebook, find it easy to spot Russian disinformation because the lies are so egregious and so outrageous. But when that disinformation is, for example, accidentally picked up by somebody who is in a a respected position, so somebody, somebody like me, for example, who, you know, without blowing my trumpet, I'm you know, have a doctor and and an academic position, and therefore people will trust what I say on the internet. If I were to accidentally share Russian disinformation, it becomes misinformation. That's when the waters get really muddied, and that's when it becomes very hard to pick apart what's real and what's fake. So how would you suggest that our audience look, say, scrolling through Twitter and seeing these various things, How can you tell when it's an outright lie, when it's disinformation, when it's misinformation, or when it's the truth? So I would look, as always, at reputable sources. And the reputable sources that are least likely to be spreading misinformation are mainstream Western media, reputable news organizations. And of course, they sometimes get things wrong. But most of the time, they will be right, and they have pretty rigorous fact-checking policies in place. I would look for academics, that is, not just native-born Western academics, but anybody working in Western academia with expertise 
only in Eastern and Central Europe. So don't trust somebody who's a random history professor somewhere in the States who's an expert on whatever US history, because they may not be able to recognize the information in this particular case, right? When it comes to US history, US events, great, go trust them, but not in this case. And I would look to Ukrainian journalists who are on the ground in Ukraine, partly because I think they're sharing so much firsthand material. But of course, be wary that many of those comments that they share and many of the posts they share are driven by emotion and driven by sort of first response, first gut reaction, rather than necessarily so much of a rigorous fact-checking process. But you can start to correlate any piece of information. If you see something and it looks too good to be true, ask, has it been shared in the New York Times and by an academic and by somebody else who's reputable? The more reputable people that are sharing it, the more likely it is to be true. So just hesitate before you click that like or share button and you will be able to help limit this snowballing effect of the spread of information and disinformation. What do you think about the reality of NATO getting into the fight? Do you think that's a mistake or do you think there's overcautiousness? That is a whole kettle of fish. And I'm not necessarily the expert to speak on the military ramifications. But what I can tell you is the ways in which Russian propaganda will amplify any even tiny overtures that NATO makes towards Ukraine are turned into these sort of apocalyptic narratives in Russia itself about NATO seeking to destabilize and even completely destroy Russia. Everything is hyperbolized. So we see, you know, NATO sends one rocket launcher to Russia that can quickly be transformed into this narrative that NATO is on the brink of actually invading Russia. And so do I think that necessarily matters? Well, in a sense, no, in propaganda terms, because the Russian government is so willing to lie in its propaganda and lie outrageously, that they don't need much to start creating these sort of cascading series of lies. So when it comes to propaganda reactions and the reactions of the Russian, my advice will be, do what you want because they're going to lie about it anyway. Do you think they'll do more than lie about it? You know, go to nuclear options? It seems really unlikely, but who knows? We didn't really predict February the 24th. If you'd have asked somebody a year ago or two years ago, this seems outrageously unlikely. The, the very nature of the war seems to be counterproductive to Russia in that, you know, when you examine it in economic terms, in terms of territorial gain, in terms of what it could hope to gain, in terms of like mineral resources, things like that. It's losing on every front in that regard. The war is, is a no-hoper. And therefore, the war, we must say, has to be ideological in nature. It has to be driven by racial and ethnic hatred, which I genuinely believe it is, as much as it is by any sort of logical rationale that we can deduce. And therefore, you ask... When it comes to ideologically driven regimes, at what point will they stop? I, I think the nuclear option is vanishingly unlikely, but everything is vanishingly unlikely until it happens. Do you have any thoughts about what will happen, about how this will resolve? I think the stories in the early months of the war about Russia's impending collapse were very much overblown. And I don't see the government being overthrown or Putin being removed anytime soon. 
And if Putin were to die suddenly, for example, or were to be removed, I think we would see another shade of Putin in power. Perhaps somebody a little less ideologically driven, but I don't think we'll see a huge change in foreign policy. I think ultimately Russia will settle for any way out of the war that saves face to some extent. But I don't see them doing that until there is decisive action on the battlefield in favor of Russia or in favor of Ukraine. And I think probably the most likely scenario, and this is this is so unfortunate given that it is ethically and morally not a desirable outcome, is I see another version of the 2014 frozen-not-frozen frozen conflict situation recurring whereby Russia will have seized Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and maybe some other bits and pieces and will then be happy to pause things, or at least will be content to pause things. Unless Ukraine receives really decisive military aid from elsewhere, I think at some point they too will be ready to sue for some sort of peace. And I'm not saying that's the outcome that I would want, but I think it's probably the most likely. From what I hear, the Donbass region is to a large extent leveled and in Russian control. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, Essentially, they've pursued the same aggressive military tactics that they did in Chechnya, that they did in Syria, and that is aim for a very rapid victory. And when it fails, just destroy everything. And so they've got something that they can claim control, and that plays well in propaganda back home. But what they've ultimately got, and again, I'm reading this in very raw terms, and it, it seems somewhat crude, but what they've got now is not much of anything at all because they've destroyed so much. So there is no real benefit to Russia having these territories under its control. They're only going to be expensive boondoggles for the country, as is, for example, Crimea. And there is a lot of rancor within Russia about the position that Crimea has held because it's sucked up so much of the country's finances in order to sort of proclaim that Krimnash, that Crimea is ours, where that money, some see, would have been better spent in poorer regions of Russia itself. This is Anne Levine. You are listening to Ukraine 242. Today we hear from Dr. Ian Garner, a historian and translator of Russian culture and war propaganda. His work focuses on Soviet and Russian literary and cultural representation of war. His book, Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival, will be released later this year. Back to my interview with Dr. Ian Garner. In your opinion, what is it in Russian culture that makes Ukraine this ultimate brass ring for so long, probably a thousand years? You certainly would know. We have to recognize that Russia has been an imperial power for as long as it's existed. And Ukraine has occupied this very odd position of being simultaneously imagined as a brother nation, as a, as a nation of close cousins. And of course, your listeners will all know this. You know, those, those boundaries are there on a personal level for everybody. If knows Ukrainians, has Ukrainian relatives, whether close relatives or distant relatives. You know, there's such a shared degree of culture between the two countries. But the reasons for that all too frequently have been violent and about subjugation, about reinforcing Russian nationhood and Russian feelings of power, not just by seizing 
things like grain from Ukraine, which seems to be a recurring story, but by sheer violence and attempts to eliminate parts of another culture, and that comes up. It's quite a fascist idea, if we use a more modern term. The idea that somehow to shore up your own culture, to bolster your sense of macho, of feeling whole, that you have to destroy something else. And unfortunately, Ukraine has come in the firing line time and time again. Would you say they're just in the firing line, or is there something about Kiev that is in the Russian imagination or reality? I mean, Kiev in particular, yes, of course, we can go back to this history of Kiev's the idea of the cradle of Rus. But a lot of these stories, I don't think it's something that's necessarily inherent to a Russian mentality. Especially in the last 15 to 20 years, the Putin government has constructed this narrative very carefully. If you go back to what Putin was saying 20 years ago, Kiev and Ukraine didn't really figure in his speeches at all. If you look 10 years ago to the presidential election in 2012, you can start to see this bizarre and ahistorical misquoting of history and deliberate misquoting of texts, even texts that are sort of ancient medieval texts like the Primary Chronicle, some of your listeners might know, which is a medieval monk's attempt to chronicle the first few years of, of Russia's ancient statehood. Putin started deliberately misquoting these things and shaping a history, shaping a reality that had never existed. And that included the idea that somehow Kiev belonged to Russia. Not just that it was the cradle of Russia, but that it's somehow this historical empire, this idea of Rusimir, the Russian world, came to dominate Putin's speeches. And I think this was a reaction to a generation of protesters that came to adulthood in 2011 and 2012 when there were those big protests in Moscow. And Putin found essentially that the young people were restive, that they were angry, that he hadn't come good on his promises. And therefore he needed to shut them down by saying they were anti-Russian because they didn't believe in this wild story of Ruski Mir because they were looking to the West and they were looking to democratic ideals. When's the last time you were in Russia? So the last time I was in Russia was in 2019, just before the pandemic. My wife is from Kamchatka, she's Russian, and so we visited Kamchatka, and it is such a strikingly beautiful place. Yet it is also striking the poverty that you will see in a place like Kamchatka, which is one of the poorest regions of Russia. And just outside the city centre, you will travel through what are effectively shanty towns things that you would not expect to see in any kind of a a developing nation almost, let alone a developed nation. In these far-flung parts of Russia, there is a whole lot of resentment and anger, of helplessness, and all of those things have been cultivated and used by the regime over the last 20 years. It has cultivated a resentment towards the West, a resentment towards the rich within Russia, a resentment towards immigrants within Russia. And it has encouraged a sort of silent helplessness at the same time, the idea that we can't do anything about it. It is an eight or nine hour flight to Kamchatka alone. It is basically a different continent. Moscow seems a world away from these places. And people in these places feel like they have no future, no hope of getting out. And they certainly feel like things have not been getting better over the past few years. Everybody is poorer. And yet at the same time, the only option that many poorer people, especially those without access to good education, which is many Russians, the only option people have is to sign up for the army as a contract soldier because it gives you a good salary for a few years. 
and sorry, this is an answer on your question, but I think it's important. If you're looking for people to target in Russia to get them to move away from this violence and anger, it is those people who feel they have no options but to fight. To tell them that life can be better and should be better, but your fight is not with Ukrainians or anybody from abroad. Your fight is with your government that is misusing money, that is embezzling money on a mass scale and is making things deliberately worse for you and is willing to have you killed in order to perpetuate its own ambitions. Who, if anyone, is spreading that message? I know from work on a book that I'm producing right now, which is about young Russians, I know that there are foreign governments working within Russia or attempting to reach Russian youth, although it is extremely hard for them to do so because, understandably, it's very difficult for them even to work through civil organizations, let alone actually send representatives out to places like Kamchatka and, and work with young people. Some folks are trying to work through the internet, through targeted advertising, through influencers, things like that, although, again, extremely difficult because there is such an inbuilt suspicion of anything that comes from abroad, and people in Russia are genuinely afraid to talk about anything that is anti-government right now and and they're afraid and silent in a way that i haven't seen in the last 16 years and the last few months have been something entirely new things have gone really really quiet and the government has done a really effective job in the last especially two or three years of smashing apart the remaining opposition smashing apart civil rights organizations gay rights activists for example are one of the biggest targets of being anti-russian of labeling anybody it doesn't like a foreign agent and subjecting them to arbitrary violence and arbitrary trials. That means it's extremely difficult for anybody to organize at all, let alone organize any effective opposition or organize any effective outreach efforts to particular segments of the population. Well, Dr. Garner, we are looking forward to work to follow on Young Russians. Do you have a title? The title is The Z Generation Into the Heart of Putin's Fascist Youth, and it will be out early next year through Hearst Publishers. Dr. Garner, I want to thank you very much for spending this time with us. We are looking forward to Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival. Is there something that you would suggest that we read in preparation? Other history we should know? I would read the single greatest work of literature of the 20th century, and that is Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, which teaches us so much about what happened in the Soviet era and under the Nazis at and around Stalingrad and during the war, but also the nature of what it is like to live in a totalitarian society, and that is Russia today, about the ways in which totalitarian governments can cripple people's psyche, twist people's minds, destroy them internally, and indeed the ways in which some people cooperate and are enthusiastic about doing that. It is truly a great novel that rivals war and peace in its brilliance and in its philosophical, historical, and literary scope. Could you talk a little bit about war and peace and about its importance in the culture of Russia? That is a question that is as big as the book is long. It is a work that contains errors historically, but attempts to explain the nature of what it is like to fight, to be at war, the ways in which people can be twisted by society and dreams of personal glory. And it's come to occupy such an important position because it's so broad in scope. There are so many different parts of it and so many different possible readings of it that it can mean something to Russian liberals because it seems to argue in part against wars of imperial dominance and war itself. 
And yet it also reinforces nationalist narratives because it's Russian leadership and Russian generals who seem to be in tune with the art of war in a way that Napoleon is not in the War of 1812. It's one of those books in which a work of art can be deployed in or has been deployed in so many different ways in another culture. Well, we wish you the best with your publications. And once again, thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you for having me. We are grateful to Dr. Garner for sharing his expertise with us. I am Anne Levine, the creator and host of Ukraine 242, in collaboration with Pacifica Network, WOMR, and Kraina FM. This show was edited and produced by Ursula Rudenberg of Pacifica Network, recording by Michael Levine. If you want to send a message of encouragement to Ukraine, please call 510-883-3115 and leave your message on the voicemail. Your words will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast throughout Ukraine. That's 510-883-3115. For pictures of our guests and other information, please stop by at ukraine242.com. Thank you for listening.